So this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. Welcome to Feature Creep, colon. Build in microwave, semicolon. Uh, idiomatic. Once in a idiomatic. blue moon. That's what I'm Perfect. putting. Yeah. Once in a blue moon. We'll do the same the same podcast uh, topic twice. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we've, we've covered idioms in the past in our episode Death's Door and other idioms, which I think we published last year on 420 dude um oh my. right and yeah. uh anyway so what is an idiom uh so according to wikipedia it's a phrase or expression that typically represents a figurative non-literal meaning attached to the phrase mm. um i mean it goes on it's a wikipedia article but uh <laughs> that's it that's all it says. do either of you have some uh some idioms you'd like to throw out there um, I don't know. There well, I've got some to start with. So, so many of them. Yeah. Great. So my grandmother was always fine, fond of saying yanking my chain or pulling my chain, um, uh. which often, often ties in with pulling someone's leg. Um, it was, uh, I remember it like vividly because it was one of those things where I was first both introduced to idioms and the idea of like, like more meaning than the face value of words um, mm -hmm. because I remember her explaining it to me because I like in my mind as soon as she said that I'm just like well I don't know where the chain is and I I certainly wouldn't pull on it <laughs> you know like I just wasn't really um, like making making the connection and then I remember struggling with like she explained it to me and I conceptually understood but I kept struggling with not just conjuring up this vision of me pulling a chain and I'm trying to and I was like trying to understand why that was funny or um, you know, whatever. So I always yeah. remember being confused by the violent ones that got turned around casually, like, you know, um, killing two birds with one stone oh, or, yes. um, yes. what are the other ones? Uh, like beating a dead horse, right? Where it's like, wait, yes. yeah. <laughs> why am I sitting in like a casual office conversation discussing not beating dead horses? Isn't that creepy? Shouldn't yeah. we not? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah a lot of the ones that were like kicking the bucket um bite, bite the bullet bite the bullet um well so bite the bullet is i my understanding of bite the bullets pain related like i always envisioned biting yes. the bullet was the idea that you bite onto a lead bullet while you're having your legs sawed off but it's getting it it's getting something unpleasant over oh, yeah, with right? right like it's not right. Yes. It's not just about trying to get through the pain. It's also about like, it's going to happen sooner or later. So it might as well happen sooner. And it can be anything from life mildly inconvenient to really unpleasant. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. I mean, these days probably people aren't using the term bite the bullet with like travesties. They're more talking about like having to file their taxes. Does bite the bullet also have to do specifically with things that are going to be problematic? Like, like, I, in the context of biting the bullet, I always think of like you—you you kind of have to step up and be responsible for something really unpleasant, like 
like in the movie Pulp Fiction when he's like, you bite the bullet and you take her to the emergency room <laughs> instead of bringing her to my front lawn where she's going yeah. to. Yeah. So, Ned, the yeah. idioms.com agrees with you, Origin, in the medieval times before the discovery of anesthesia, when soldiers were wounded in battle and have to be treated to or undergo surgery, they were made to bite on something hard to keep them from screaming out in pain. On the battlefield, what was mostly available was a bullet or a leather strap. Just seems to me like you'd break your teeth on a bullet and then you'd have even more problems. Yeah, I have to admit, it like just the logistics of literally biting a bullet makes me really think that that's not an accurate origin. (laughs) (laughs) What's it called when there's a metaphorical origin to the metaphorical phrase? It's a idioms idiom? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's like the meta idiom. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, I I, I was thinking also Megan response to what you're saying, like, especially with your reference to Pulp Fiction. Um, I mean, it, that is still in the context of like, I would say doing the responsible thing often involves painful steps. Yeah. Mm. Those things kind of go hand in hand as to use another idiom. What was the? <laughs> we can we can retell one joke um, from the previous podcast. It's so since it's so good, which was um, the one about I believe Meg. You were talking to a friend of yours, and you were you said you were asking her like, "Oh, can you think of any idioms?" Or you're talking about idioms, and then she asked her husband, and her husband was like, "Not off the top of my head." Yeah, <laughs> totally unironic. Like not understand, not aware that that was an idiom. Um, right. Yeah. Just like, oh, well, yeah. thanks. You did it even though you didn't want to do it. Right. <laughs> so I have to admit the same thing happened to me as we were talking about this topic. I pulled up a list of 40 commonly used and popular English idioms from uh, bkacontent.com. I have no idea what that site is. Yeah. Um, and some of them I read and go, yep, that's an idiom. Yep, that makes perfect sense. And then others of them, let's see, which ones confused me? Um uh dang it it was over here like your guess is as good as mine to me isn't an idiom but i guess maybe it is or maybe this list is wrong yeah um no pain no gain is also on this list which is confusing to me i mean i guess it's metaphorical in the sense that it doesn't need to be literal pain but it seemed weird right Uh, yeah i mean the a blessing in disguise. Yeah. So I think idioms, according to Wikipedia, there's a further definition, which is that some phrases become figurative idioms while retaining the literal meaning of the phrase. Right. So they become okay. idiomatic, even though they're, they're still typically like they're really close to home as far as what their, their meaning is. Um, so I think that's idiom is a, like all English, um, it's it's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> and some of it's outdated too, right? Uh-huh. Um, I was thinking about that. Someone, some audiobook I was listening to used the phrase "pot calling the kettle black," and I thought, you know, if I was a kid, I don't think I would understand that. Like modern day cookware does not turn black. Right. 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 Yep. Totally outdated. Um, <clears throat> I'm reading at the Wikipedia site. It says that in linguistics, and I love linguistics, 
In linguistics, idioms are usually presumed to be figures of speech, and figures of speech contradict a linguistic principle of compositionality, which is the idea that if you can understand the individual components of a sentence or an idea, then you should be able to understand the idea as a whole. Whereas with idioms, that doesn't necessarily stand hmm. true mm -hmm. because you can understand all of the figures of speech and all of the components of the idiom. And those things taken as a whole may mean something other than the individual components of it. And so it violates compositionality, which is really interesting. That is interesting. Mm -hmm. So idioms are non-compositional, in other words, linguistically. So it can be an idiom if it's something that made sense in a past time, but is still a phrase that is used. It can be an idiom if it's a metaphor that can be literally understood. And it can be an idiom if it's just widely enough in, in use that everyone understands the meaning, even if the meaning doesn't isn't actually I extrapolatable from the idiom. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's a... I mean, if we're going to cast that wide of a net, then sure, the ones that I just mentioned are mm -hmm. on the list. I mean, there says the agnostic. I, I don't know that there is a literal blessing in literal disguise, but right, right. Sure, we'll use it. Um, I like um, I like the ones that have like really interesting imagery, um, like. I really like the idiom caught red-handed. Yes. I was just looking at that one. Yes. Vivid. Yeah. Like, and I, I always assumed, and then I looked it up, and I guess it's I was correct that like being caught red-handed means is it, the reason you say red-handed is because you've got blood on your hands. Like it's yeah, being caught in the middle of a murder in the case of blood on your hands, or the idiom, of course, is incontrovertible proof that you have done something wrong and you are caught in that state. <laughs> Yeah, or more generally caught in the act. Yeah. Um, apparently, red-handed originated in Scotland in the 15th century, and the first appearance in documentation is from the Scottish Acts of Parliament in 1432 in the time of King James I. Really? Yeah. Cool. Um, it turned into the phrase we use today around the 19th century, and then its use in... Um, the composition Ivanhoe is what helped spread it all over the English speaking world. And I learned this from the idioms dictionary. Well, I'm still playing around at the idioms.com. Thanks to Ned. And I looked up color idioms mm -hmm. and it, it's interesting to me. So there's a fair amount of overlap, right? It's rare for like black to mean bad in one idiom and good in another idiom. Yeah. But it's interesting to me that there's not, not that there really would be langu language is never this simple, but that there's not like one idiom for each color or, you know, some sort of like right, right. sensible layout. So we've got black mood, red handed, brown study. They're including outside the lines, which is kind of, Cute, I guess so. If you're coloring, right? Um, <laughs> That's great. White lie, green with envy, Black Friday, Black Day, red herring, and pot calling the kettle black. So apparently, a lot of idioms are black. Yeah. Interesting. And red herring is a weird one. It is. It yes. is a weird one. I wonder if. Um, I wonder if red herring is kind of like. I mean, now I can see the what they say about the 
origin, but I was speculating about it being kind of similar to the idea of a snipe hunt. Mm. Um, like when I was in the Boy Scouts, uh, we often had snipe hunts and it was like pretty ridiculous. Some of them. Um, but if you're not familiar with the practice, it's basically a practical joke where it's like you kind of, you, you basically get a bunch of people to believe that there's a, a bird or some kind of animal called a snipe and we're all going to hunt for it in the bushes mm-hmm. and you like get everybody to run around like bat- banging pots and pans or whatever. Um, there's no such thing, but that's the, that's the joke, right? Like it's great for little kids and boy scouts where you get them running all over the hill. Um, I bet. yeah, I mean, I, lying to children is a little bit of a gray area for me. I typically don't like it that much, but I do have fond memories of both being duped and then also being able to do the duping. So I don't know, <laughs> take that as, as you will. Um, I have such fond memories of playing imaginary games that I'm not as offended by untruth as I think some people are. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. I made up so much stuff as a kid and it gave me so much joy that I'm, I, I have found much more forgiving of yeah. things not being true or not being literal. Right. I mean, I think there's a different, like, obviously intention has a big part of it. And then also, um, you know, like I, I'm still a little bit bitter about being lied to in school when I went to one year of, of a religious school where they, they, <laughs> they just in science class, they told me that there were men had one less rib than women. And I had, and because you can't feel all of your ribs typically, yeah. unless you're, you know, um, I'm like, I have no way to verify this and I'm not running around like feeling the other girls in the class. So I'm just like, I guess I'm, I'm like, I can't feel all of them anyway, so I can't count up. And so I've got, I, this must be true. They're just telling it as fact because they didn't link it to the Bible. They were just like, in my mind, I justified it as like, oh, well, you know, that's an interesting fact. It doesn't mean that that's proof that God exists. It just means that there's a biology that's going on yeah. with this. And it wasn't until I got into college that I that stupid factoid was revealed to me as false. And so yeah. that's kind of, you know, I mean, it wasn't terrible, but it was also a little bit embarrassing because I'm like, yeah. you know, I just... Oh, in, in not terrible, but slightly embarrassing retractions, by the yeah. way, uh, on a previous episode, I had said that this has nothing to do with the current conversation, but on a previous episode, I had said that that um, silly Twitter account, the Oval Apophis, is official, and it is not, just oh, for the record. Okay, oh. it's not. It exists. Yes. They've got, uh, they've clearly got some sort of an inside source for pictures because they're posting stuff that would be hard to get a hold of if you didn't have connections right, to the right. White House. But they are explicitly not official, and I felt a little bit bad for saying that they were. Yeah, that's all right. Oh. I mean, it's yeah. Well, we. I think uh, yeah. What can you do but issue a retraction? Should we put that in the <laughs> errata and the at the end of uh, yep, that episode? Definitely. Yeah. Um, looking at red herring, it's kind of interesting because um, the I'm just looking at the origin because I yes, got curious. Yeah. So everyone seems to agree that a red herring is a smelly item right it's a preserved fish it's extremely easy to smell even if you're a human and not a like tracking dog um but no one seems to agree on a tremendous amount after that Mm -hmm. so it, it may be that it was a training tool for uh tracking dogs it may be that it was used to confuse dogs who were on the trail of something. You would run a red herring across the trail of whatever they were tracking in, in the hopes of distracting them. It may be that 
the poor could use red herring to train their dogs because it was cheap enough that they could use it. Like, and at this point, we're so far off from the meaning of the idiom that I'm not quite clear why these things are referenced. But I, I have now Googled the origin of red herring and, uh, you know, three or four or five different sites all mention all three of those things, many of which don't seem terribly relevant to me. Right. <laughs> um, so this, the, the idioms.com red herring origin story says in order to preserve a herring in times before refrigeration, they were salted and the process would turn them red. Thus they would be available to even the poor to use in the training of hounds. The practice was first introduced in 1697 by Gerland Langbein, and it was said to be a good substitute for a dead fox or cat when training horses to follow a hunting party. The book was mistranslated, and a red herring was thought to be used for the training of dogs. But none of that has anything to do with the way that the idiom is used. Right. And the the other thing that I'm finding on other sites makes more sense, which is... Like if I think about the idiom of a red herring, I was following a red herring means I was following. Well, actually, now I guess it could mean a couple of different things. It could mean that I was following something that wasn't really there, like a deliberately laid track with a red herring for the purpose of training an animal. But I tend to think of it as being something that pulled you off of the right track, right? Like my dog was following the trail of the deer, but then someone dragged a red herring across the trail and confused uh, him. Yep. Yep. I don't know. That is, yeah, because there's a logical transformation that takes place between how we use it and how it's described in the past tense. And it, we haven't found anything that reflects that flip yet. But I also think that, you know, one of the challenges with metaphors is when you, once you move out of the literal, um, you can have something that is a very close metaphor mm -hmm. or you can have something that is a much further away metaphor. So... I think that this may be one of those situations where the idiom has taken on a general enough meaning that we don't actually know what it was originally used as. Um, I have, I do have, a I also, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm also confused by the idioms.com because they give us the figurative use of the phrase as it is theoretically attributed. They don't say who attributes it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they say it was used once before in a parliamentary session on March 20th, 1782, but they don't give any usage there. <laughs> right. So part of what we've proven, I think, is that doing a fast Google before starting a podcast gives you questionable sources. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, I have this other question, which is that uh, it talks about um, a book saying that a red herring, a smelly fish was used to train horses to follow a hunting party are right. horses interested in dead fish horses have decent senses of smell mm -hmm. but and i'm not a fox hunter so this is way far away from what i ought to understand sure. but my my understanding is that the reason that we use dogs who bay dogs who bark is partly because the horses and the people can follow the barking dogs which should mean that the horses don't really need to use their noses right right and horses can't get their noses all that close to the ground while they're riding mm -hmm. if they're going at any sort of speed and if they if their rider would like to stay on their back, right? Like picture a horse galloping through right. the <laughs> hill in a fox hunt. Its nose right. isn't on the ground. Right. Picture a bloodhound running after a fox. Its nose is pretty dang close to the ground. Right. So 
I'm unclear. I mean, I I guess if we were going to train a horse to follow a scent, it would need to be a pretty smelly scent. Right. So maybe, but it, I don't feel like it really follows particularly well. Yeah. But here, I, here speaks someone who doesn't fox hunt. So sure. really, truly, I could be dead wrong. Right. I was just, I guess yeah. if you're just looking for a strong scent smell and you're training horses to follow scent, then that i mean i okay do you want a uh animal behavior uh sidetrack briefly of course so that part makes sense if you want to train an animal to follow a scent you start by teaching them to um follow a very obvious scent Mm -hmm. and that's partly to make their job really clear and it's partly so that the human who doesn't have as good a sense of smell can confirm whether or not their animal is correct So if I wanted to train my dog to, I don't know, find something that I had touched, Mm -hmm. I would start by putting something that I had touched in with something that smells stronger, like cinnamon or pepper or something like that. And I would actually first train the dog to to look for the stronger scent. Mm -hmm. But because dogs are so good at identifying scents, as they get used to the job of finding the smelly thing, I can dial down the amount of cinnamon or the amount of pepper that I'm using and train my dog instead to look for my scent. Mm-hmm. And that's usually an easier way to do it than to start with a, with a scent that is more subtle and go from there. Gotcha. Right. So the idea that I would take something really smelly and use it for the initial stages of scent detection makes total sense to me. Right. Um, but whether or not I would need to do that in order to train a horse to do their job for a fox hunt makes very little sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause one of the things that you'll do with dogs really commonly, if you're doing scent training is you'll take really smelly treats and that's actually what they'll be scenting first because right. that they do naturally, right? That one's an obvious one. They, they are highly motivated to find the smelly treat. They're highly motivated to eat the smelly treat and it gets them started thinking about using their noses instead of just their eyes. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that the more we think about it, the more, the less sense it makes. Yeah. It's the reason that I've always thought of a red herring as being the thing that pulls you off the real scent, not the thing that we teaches you how to scent something. And if I had understood the metaphor as being that I would have used it very differently in the past. Well, that raises an interesting question. If literally everyone who uses the metaphor or the idiom is using it in the way that we initially thought you would use it and not in the way that we're discovering it's recorded as being meaningful, then the meaning of it by default changes and I like it would change over time to be what we all thought it was before we realized we were wrong. Well, yeah. I mean, try this definition on. I would describe red herring as meaning a false um, a false lead. Sure, but the in the um, origin that we just read, yeah, the red herring is the true lead, right? You're using it to train your animal to follow a scent. Well, it's a replacement. It's, it's a substitute. It's lead. substitute yeah. lead. That's my. I mean, it's it's a bit of a stretch, but I mean, I think also. Like like you mentioned, Dana, about um, doing some cursory research as opposed to the more thorough research we usually we usually <laughs> do. Um, 
you know, we're just kind of reading this for the first time and like interpreting like a lot out of context. I think that's I I do like the idioms.com um, website where we're pulling a lot of this from. Um, it has some things that, as I mentioned when we first pulled this up before we started the podcast, there's some things mm-hmm. that I don't like about it. Um, one of them being that if you click on the complete list, you're still stuck paging through um, <laughs> paging through all of the idioms. One, you know, like six at a time or something. There's 144 pages of them. But oh, that is does not follow the literal meaning of complete list. Right. right. And then the other issue is with the um the origin not providing a little more source. I mean, like having that random sentence thrown in, however it was used once once before um that in a parliamentary session on March twentieth, seventeen eighty two. Which, where, who, how? Yeah. Anything. Even if you just said, you know, as retrieved from or um you know, I don't know. Give me something to go on. Which which yeah. parliament? Yeah, agreed. Um, you know. Anyway, uh, if I can pivot us slightly, one of the things that I think is interesting as I'm looking at this is thinking about other phrases that would be just as valid as idioms, but that didn't make it as idioms. So, like rocket science is on uh, the list. Yeah totally valid as an idiom right because you're usually if you say something isn't rocket science you're not informing someone that it isn't aerospace engineering right Right, you're informing someone that it's fairly straightforward right um but you could just as easily say it's not i don't know organic chemistry or it's not performing surgery or it's not like there are a million other things that you could say so why did rocket science catch on um i think because it's so like Brain surgery is difficult, but it's probably possibly true that there are more surgeons and subsequently brain surgeons than there are rocket scientists, or that may have been the case at the time that rocket science was popularized. Like, I think the rarity and the difficulty of it as a job is what lends to the emphasis of, like... I mean, also, you can imagine um, rocket science is typically more front of public eye i guess even now like i mean we've had some lulls but it's coming back around where it's like people are talking more about space exploration and you can imagine maybe in the 60s when rocket science was like booming um yeah that that saying something isn't brain surgery is kind of like people are like wait you operate people operate on brains what um as opposed to rocket science where it's like oh people get that there's this crazy hard thing that that some people some smart people are doing right there's there's more mm-hmm. cultural history to it in context um which yeah. i think is kind of what you're saying meg um, yeah like uh, surgery is mm, performing surgery is more common than performing rocket science like landing a rocket on the moon or mars seems harder than doing a surgery at this point mm-hmm. yeah and maybe always has, which is, uh, that's the only thing I can think of for why that was selected. Like it's universally recognized as really hard and so hard that people fail constantly at doing it, which it also say of surgery, but <laughs> it also has a nice ring to it, right? Like there's something about the wording of it that is nice. My other example was it's not organic chemistry. And that only makes sense if you're, you know, someone who went to college with friends who lamented that or that organic chemistry was the class that was going to kill them. Um, so rocket science is a nice, easy, concise field that like you can figure out what it means 
you don't need a particular shared experience in order to get there. Yeah. I, I think that it makes sense that it caught on, but I also do find it interesting. I suspect that there are a lot of phrases that would work just as well that for some reason didn't make it into common language or that didn't last yeah. from one era into the next. Yeah. I would also guess that some of our current idioms will age out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, my earlier example of pot calling the kettle black doesn't make any sense anymore. At some point, someone will stop using it because it doesn't make sense. Right. I've always wondered. Um, I've always wondered. So I imagine most people are familiar with UrbanDictionary.com. Um, yes. Yes. I would imagine that uh, in some ways you could basically, if you look at, if you compare the idioms.com with UrbanDictionary.com, you could argue that the idioms.com is like sort of the aging idioms going away and the urban dictionary is like the incoming oh, idioms culturally yeah. speaking um because if you look through it like i mean there's there are there is horrible shit on that website no question um <laughs> but you know like just you know none of it is uh safe for work um but can if you, yeah can I share what is currently the word of the day on yes. UrbanDictionary.com oh my God. I love because this so much. it yeah. is making me laugh? So the February twenty fifth, twenty twenty one word of the day is literally, which is described as "Who fucking knows anymore?" First it meant factual, and now it means fictional. What the fuck, internet? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I uh, yeah, I that actually I have Megan. I have talked a lot about literally mm -hmm. and the problem with how it what upsets me most about the um trying to redefine it is that um it's not it's not no one says literally and means figurative people are being right. hyperbolic but when they choose the word literally they don't want you to think figurative they want you to oh. think literal because i'm being oh. hyperbolic oh my god i'm about to die is hyperbolic right. And I, if I say I'm literally about to die, I'm being even more hyperbolic because you understand the true meaning of literal, which is factual, right? And so yeah. I'm telling a blatant, bold-faced, hyperbolic lie. And see, I have always assumed, and this is an extremely elitist opinion, that the reason that literally became contentious was because there was some group of people out there who did not know what it meant, who misused it and annoyed the people who knew what it meant. I don't... But Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that group of people never actually existed in the first place. I would argue that there may be a group of people who use literally so often in a hyperbolic statement that it becomes idiomatic, right? For <laughs> them, they're using the word literally the same way that I say like because I grew up in Southern California and I can't quite get it out of my lexicon. Um, I can't get it out of mine either. I, ty I type it into words, like yes. into sentences yeah. now. Yeah. And so I think that you had you maybe have groups of people who are using it because it, it's become idiomatic. It's part of a phrase that they're saying, but they're not thinking like you know, maybe they don't know what it means, but they certainly don't think it means figurative other than they only really know that like they might think of it in the hyperbole. Yes. Like the, yeah. the hyperbo hyperbolic definition of it, which is to say that I'm being hyperbolic about it. Um, that's my, I mean, that's my thinking anyway. I mean, also if you go around changing the definition of words, like 
like like to change it in the dictionary is to say that we all now agree or that it's such a massive change in the shift of the definition of it. And the worst part is when you actually go look, I forget who changed it originally. I think it was um I think it was Webster's. Hmm. Now I'm going to maybe do a little Wait, cool. it's actually been changed cuz that's insane. Yeah, that's that's what yep. that's wow. where that's where the whole thing that's got. Why we're off about it yeah oh that's um, so sad i clearly haven't been paying enough attention yeah Let's yeah see. we've both become like fairly inflamed over the fact that the official definition has changed because that yeah. doesn't reflect the way that people have changed their use of the term like that's the annoying thing <laughs> so i can never decide what i think and actually this is this is almost idiomatic my uh grandfather and my father got into a got into an argument at some point over me using slang terms and my grandfather insisting that i use proper english and my father basically saying what is proper english do you want her speaking in latin in old english right like language what? evolves that's how this works yeah 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 and I think it's another of those situations where the truth lies somewhere in between. Like just because someone used a word a particular way once or twice or even a thousand times doesn't necessarily mean that the word has changed. But also insisting on using outdated terminology just because it's how the language used to go seems elitist and pointless. And I'm never quite sure where to draw the line between, okay, I guess this word has a new meaning now. And wait a minute, that's not what that word meant. I, I mean, I think I don't disagree with you. I think that my, my, my anger or not anger, I'm not angry about it. I'm fucking pissed off. I'm my, my issue with the way that they changed it is that it feels out of touch with the people who are using it. Like yeah. it's yes. not, it's, it's not that, you know, if they wanted to read, you know, if they wanted to add more definitions to the word like and talk much about its, you know, history of, of slang and the way that it's been sucked into all kinds of things, um, which is might actually be a very interesting podcast episode. Um, but setting that aside, literally is only being used to its true definition in every context I've ever read, even yeah. even though it's hyperbolic, right? Right. But if there is that mythical group of people who were simply misusing the word initially, yeah, and now it has taken over in any meaning, then maybe it is valid. But it hasn't, right? Like, where where are those people, and where's that literature, and where where are those dialogues that show that people are using the word literally to mean figurative? Yeah, like that's where I that's where it falls down for me. It's not if you had that, if you could say, hey, look, there's this whole you know, work and there's all these body of discussions and YouTube videos and, and media that's being released where people are using the word literally to mean figurative, then fine. But there are none that I can find. Whenever they yeah. use the word literally, they mean literally, even if it's not true. Like, it, like at some point you're just like, okay, well, we're going to call out all liars and basically undermine what their, their lies by changing the words to what they actually mean. Like, that's not the job of the dictionary is not to do like idiom idiomatic translation of all language right like that's kind of what we're getting to or yeah. am I, am I you know I, I i agree with you if that's true then great i would be happy to be like that's fine i just can't find it no one no one seems to be able to produce this evidence that literally anyone means anything other than literal in the right. original definition yes even the even the i'm trying to find the um it's like a massive misunderstanding it's like a so massive it, miscommunication 
It looks to me, and this is the challenge with trying to research something while podcasting, because I may be about to say exactly what you just said, but it looks to me like the argument is if everyone appears to agree, and obviously everyone is debatable, but Mm -hmm. if it is widely understood that people are using the word literally in a hyperbolic sense to emphasize their meaning, adding a note... They are about something, yeah. Adding a note in the dictionary that says literally is, well, isn't this entertaining, not always used literally and is sometimes used figuratively to mean extremely uh, is figurative. That's hyperbole. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's the, that's the problem. It's used hyperbolically. So so Um, Merriam Webster has sort of like slyly updated their web page and they no longer say figurative or their definition it now i mean they have they have a discussion about how like can it mean figurative but they no longer yeah. have it as the second definition the second de- definition is now virtually because of yeah like because they were wrong yeah. like they're the ones who made this like it wasn't the oed it was the i'm pretty sure it was Merriam webster like correct you know please write hate mail to us so we can have something to discuss but um if you're listening to this and you have issue with this please by all means we'd like to hear about it um yeah but the <laughs> they have they have since we've discussed this i mean not in this moment but like last year i'm pretty sure Merriam webster did not say and I, actually i'm going to go to the wayback machine and see if i can find um but if you look at the if you look at their their current definition and I'll I'll put it in the chat so you guys can see what I'm looking at. Um, and now I'm distracted by the idea that someone would say I'm hyperbolically about to hurl or I'm, right. you know my my brain is hyperbolically about to explode because that doesn't make any sense either. Right. I, right. Yeah. I looked it up uh I looked it up at OED. Yeah. And the OED seems to agree with us yes yeah they didn't yeah you know they weren't the ones who let's see if i can find the wayback machine and anyone who is enjoying this conversation and would like a um more eloquent discussion about this um should look at Merriam webster's um words at play article about the misuse of the word literally um if you Google Merriam-Webster, did we change the definition of literally? Right. Um, you will find it, and it is kind of fun. It also includes a long list of um, very well thought of uh, authors from a very long time ago using the word literally in a hyperbolic manner. To point out that this is not a new or recent change. It is a thing that has been happening for a long time. Mm. Interesting. I stand corrected on Merriam-Webster as far as them changing the definition. Um, According to the Wayback Machine, as far back as... um, And I'm guessing this is actually when the change happened. Hold on, let me pull it up. There is... As of... Wait, what day is that? August, sorry, January 11th, 2012, um, they were still referring to it as virtually, like in effect virtually. Um, So they weren't arguing. They have some examples of literally where they discuss the idea that many words can be used both literally and figuratively. 
which is not the same. So I'm not actually sure where the whole issue of it meaning figurative came up. I'm wondering if that has to do with poor reporting. Yeah, it seems to be poor reporting. Also, um, that article that I just referenced on Merriam-Webster has, I think, my favorite uh, mic drop of the subject, which reads, if this sense of literally is bothersome, you needn't use it. If you dislike hearing other people use it, you may continue to be upset. If you would like to broaden your complaint slightly and insist that the original meaning of literal is the only proper one, go right ahead. Although before committing to this, you should be aware that this will restrict you to using literal when you mean of, relating to, or expressed in letters. <laughs> so uh-huh, even yeah. what we think of as the word literal isn't is literal. incorrect usage, right? Mm-hmm. The word literal has already moved away from its original meaning. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We're just complaining about it moving away further from its original meaning. Right. That's a good point. Like, uh, that that fact is not lost on me, but I had not considered that before now. Like, when yeah. we talked about this before, we didn't get that far backer. But that makes a lot of sense, and you're absolutely right on that, too. Well, I- I'm, I'm applauding Merriam-Webster for being right. I think it's a really clever point to make. Um I really like this article. Anyone who's listening to this podcast should go read this article. Which, they will have fun. So what is the, where's the article? Um, Merriam Webster wrote an article called, did we change the definition of literally? I, I just for reference, I hyperlinked it in the notes document, which doesn't help anybody listening. Well, to we'll this put right. it in the description. Yeah. But if you're listening yeah. to it right now, um, if you Google, did we change the definition of literally, it will come up. It's, it was written in, um, Ned, I literally just told them this information. You did. Yes. <laughs> well, well, you were checking the Wayback Machine. No, no, no. I'm just restating since we're talking about the. Yes. No, I, I heard you. Uh, uh, there's another <laughs> article I found, um, and this is probably where the whole, you know, maybe this isn't the original article, but Salon.com in 2013, August 22nd, wrote an article titled, According to the Dictionary, Literally Now Also Means Figuratively. Um hmm. And so I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to read this while we discuss, but um, those are the headlines that happened in 2013 that made me get off on the rant yeah. that I've been on this for the last eight five year years. Long. This eight-year-long argument against... Um, <laughs> and I, I think um, it's... <laughs> I think this article is like misunderstanding. Like it misses it misses the point that we've bo- we've all been making, including apparently Merriam-Webster, which makes this article even more frustrating because obviously <laughs> it's like if you had just made reference to the original problem, then we could all understand that. Yes, turns out language is dynamic and people use it in all different kinds of ways, which is why we're talking about idioms in the first place. Um, I always find it really unsatisfying when what I find myself yelling is, well, if that news article that I had read was right, I would have the right to be really angry. Right. <laughs> I am really angry. I just yes. don't have anything valid to be angry about anymore. Yeah. <laughs> when was that When was that Merriam-Webster uh, blog post made? Or I guess it's just um, an article. That's what I was trying to look for. Not Not so much to reiterate what you said, but... I don't see on the page when it was posted. Um, yeah, I don't either. Um, yeah, I'm scanning and I don't see either. Maybe the Wayback Machine will tell us. Hold on a second. 
if people aren't familiar with the Wayback Machine, it's pretty amazing. Um, oh, yeah. Tell us about the Wayback Machine. The Wayback Machine is a website um, called the Wayback Machine, um, which, where did it go? Yeah, it's actually web webarchive.org um, or Internet Archive is the Wayback Machine. Um, and it's pretty great. You can basically pop in any website URL and uh, what so what they do is they try to scrape the web and archive web pages based like at the time that they uh, at the day that they were visited. And so if you um, like, you know, if you were v- visiting fcbm.io, like going to our website, you would in the Wayback Machine, it would show certain snapshots of when they accessed it. They may not, they don't archive everything and some websites, they don't collect all the images. It has a lot more to do with um, when people went to go look at it. And I think there's some other rules about how they archive stuff um, kind of based on popularity and some other things like that. Um, But it's pretty great because so for instance, I want to look and see when um, that Merriam-Webster posted that webpage. So I popped it in the, yep. It was first saved on August 5th, 2016. But does that mean that that's when it came out? No, that just means that was the very first access of it. So the Wayback Machine. Around then, most likely. Yeah, it it might be. I mean, uh, Merriam-Webster is a very popular website. So I imagine they archive it more regularly than other websites. Um, You can even look, when you look at the the history of that webpage, you can see they've accessed it a lot between 2018 and now. Um, there's many entries, like at least a couple every couple of months or something. Um, so anyway, um, I don't know. It's just a really interesting tool. There's another really cool thing about this website, not to go too crazy off the rails. Um, they also have an online lending library. Um, and that means you can basically check out digitized texts from them and i've found some really interesting things on here like some of the things i found on here when i was in college i borrowed some old textbooks because you know i didn't get them in time or i needed to read the assignment and i you know didn't have whatever reference it was at the time um it's it's actually an amazing collection um they have about i think they have about two million books or something like that um, wow. they're often the older versions, like they're not going to have more modern stuff, but if you're looking for like a rare text or something, they often have, um, digital copies of it that you can, you can look at and check out and it works. It's very interesting. Like you kind of have to set up a, an account and then you can check it out for a certain number of days and then you have to check it in and wait. It's just like a library. It's very interesting. Um, you know, stupid, weird, That's cool weird uh intellectual property rights problems um which Mm -hmm. i mean i'm glad they get around it um or they allow like i'm glad that this is something that exists because i think libraries are really fantastic and sorely underutilized these days yeah i love man minneapolis has a great library system yeah libraries and parks we kind of like get a pluses in both of those i think very cool Parks are like, it's not just my opinion. We just like, there are objective measures how, how good the park system is and we're always like way at the top. Right. Nice. Right. Hey, can we wrap around and make an idiom literal again? Yes, let's do it. So I'm looking at our list of idioms and one of the ones that I found is tip of the tongue. <laughs> nice. 
So it's everyone's had that sensation, right? I know yeah. the word. I know I know the word. I can't come up with the word. Well, it turns out that a group of psychologists have gotten interested in that sensation because it's odd from a neurological standpoint, right? Why would right. you know the word and not be able to come up with the word, not be able to recall the word? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually, one, one of my college professors was an expert in the tip of the tongue phenomenon. And one of the projects that we did in my undergrad psych classes to get a feel for how research is conducted was actually an extension of her research project of trying to figure out if you can reliably cause someone to have a tip of the tongue phenomenon, right? Like, can you distract them? Can you yeah. have them do multiple tasks at once? What makes it more likely that the person will know that they know the word, but not be able to recall the word? Um, so it's kind of a, first of all, it was kind of fun to, it was fun research to do, and it was an interesting thing to talk about. But second of all, I'm now really amused to realize that this is a group of psychologists who took a non-literal idiom and attached a literal sensation to it and then went hunting for what that sensation is doing in your brain. That's super. That's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, that professor is a woman named Lori James uh, uh -huh. out of uh, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Um, and it, it, it is, it is fun to me. I, yeah, I think, um, I think especially things like that are really interesting where you can, some people find it unnerving, but I typically don't find it unnerving when you can kind of expose your own nature a little bit. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, like when you're like, oh, like optical illusions are really cool. Um, or like, like those things, um, the opt, it's not really an optical illusion, but there's that thing you can do to see the blind spot in your eye or experience yeah. the blind spot because you clearly don't see it. It's the whole point. Um, like things like that are very interesting. And I think, uh, <laughs> studies that look at how your mind works is always really fascinating. Like the way associative memory is like very interesting because we have all these handles on how, um, I mean like Meg, you and I talk about this all the time, like what we envision, um, or like, you know, what, what conjures up that memory? Like, it's not just, Oh, I yeah. just think of this word. Like we, some people, um, like I'm sure my dad is like this where he describes his mind as this like organized like office space where there's a filing cabinet and you look it up but <laughs> but none of the visual right like no visual access yeah yeah whereas like you and I talk about um and I I don't I'd be interested to know what you think about this Dana but like Meg and I both often have really vivid strong like visual um mm -hmm. auditory or like smell related associations with words and ideas and things like that where when we get into it and we start talking about a topic we're like oh like i envision like the yanking the chain like i'm very yeah. like it's even though it's not literal i'm literally thinking of a chain and you know pulling on it and is it attached to my grandmother and where and why <laughs> and how is this funny and like all of that goes through my mind while i'm still also engaging in the sort of social interaction and understanding of the idea that it's an idiom and it doesn't mean any of those sure. things. It just means I'm like, you know, I'm yanking her chain. I'm, I'm telling a fib to get her, you know, to get her goat or whatever, the, what other idioms reply to that. Um, right. So I, I yeah. do have a tendency to be pretty literal, but I'm not at all visual. I don't mm. picture things. I can't tell you what color someone's eyes are. Right. I have a really hard time when someone asks me to describe someone, um, I don't like if you, if you ask me to talk about, I don't know, my dog or my horse, right. Things where like, 
all that I would have to say about them, I mean, I could talk about their temperaments and about their, for lack of a better word, personalities, because I find that interesting. But if I'm talking to someone who's not a horse person or not a dog person, the interesting thing about them is like, what color are they? How tall are they? What what would you notice when you looked at them? Right. Mm-hmm. And I can maybe run you through those things, but it's because I have them, I have those features memorized in my head. It's not because I'm referencing a picture of them in my mind and then describing to you what I see. Right, right. That's interesting. I I definitely see things in my head and I'm either, when I'm talking about them, I'm either describing the image that's in my head that's already there or I'm trying to describe like when I speak contemporaneously uh, about, um, or sorry, extemporaneously about things, I, I usually stumble a little bit because I'm trying to find the right words that match up with and overlay the imagery that I'm trying to convey to someone else that's in my head, but I have to do it through words instead of through images because I can't pass the image over to somebody else. And see, this is part of what confuses me so much, right? I, If you ask me to picture my cat, mm-hmm. I can tell you that the thing that comes to my mind is a picture, and I'm, I'm doing this right now, right? P- think about my cat. Well, I have two of them, but one of them is sitting in front of me, so that's not a fair test. So let me think about the cat that's not sitting in front of me. Okay. I remember a picture that I took of both of my cats lying down, and you can clearly see how they are similar in some ways and different in other ways. Mm-hmm. My brain has to be conjuring that picture, right? Like somewhere in my brain, I am looking at that picture. I have to be in order to be able to describe it to you, but I don't see it. Right. And if I'm sitting here talking to you, having this conversation, it makes my brain feel itchy because I'm trying to see the picture that I know is there somewhere (laughs) and I don't see it, Um, which is really kind of strange. That is strange. Because I couldn't possibly describe something visual without seeing it on some level in some way. But like, even if I sit here and close my eyes and talk to you, I still don't actually see it. Wow. Which makes no sense. So different than my experience of of the same sort of process. Well, and now I'm annoyed because my brain makes no sense. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you that that is a nonsensical thing to say. How can I describe a picture without picturing the picture? But I can, and I do regularly. Right. Oh man, I now I'm just like spiraling. I can even tell you that I think that I can. This is bizarre language to use, but I think that I can feel the part of my brain that is looking at it. I'm just not directly connected to it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like uh-huh. in my head, Ned, to to use your, was it your father's metaphor of the filing cabinet? Right. Yeah, like yeah. somewhere in my brain, someone rifles through a pile of photos and picks one out and goes, oh, it's this one. But the number of handoffs between uh-huh. the part of my brain that's looking at the picture and the part of my brain that is talking to you, uh, that that number is big enough that no conscious part of me is looking at that picture. I can't conjure it. I can't think of it. I can't see it when I close my eyes. I know it's there. It has to be there. Right. All yeah. that I want to do right now, do you know how badly I want to go pull that picture up on my computer just so that I can actually be looking at it so that it is no longer <laughs> bothering me that I can't see it? <laughs> I have like, I have um, like such a visual and like sensory 
accessible memory. Like, I don't know, I don't know how to describe this. So like, I think of all of the things I think about, I think in pictures and sensations and, uh, so, so much so that if I'm looking for something in my house that I've misplaced, if I close my eyes and think about it and like wander through the house with my eyes closed and open them up when I get to the right spot, oftentimes what I'm looking for is in fact, right in front of me because I've like uh, the, there's like a three dimensional, well, four, at least four dimensional world built into my head because time is a dimension that I think in. And so to get to a thing that exists in the real physical world, I have to usually get there in the model of the world that I have in my head and then go to that place in real life. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and when I think about all of the stuff I know of or know about or know where it is or whatever, like all of the things that I know have some kind of relationship to all the other things that I know and they're all in there together. And the relationships are sometimes the more important thing than the things themselves. So like in order for me to remember one thing, I have to remember the things that that thing is attached to. And I can either go directly there to the thing or I can get there through the other things that it's attached to in my head. Mm -hmm. That's like losing your train of thought mid conversation and having you and your conversational partner back up a couple of sentences and be like, wait a minute, we were talking about this and then we were talking about that. And then, Oh, this. Right. Yeah. Very yeah. like that. Very yeah. much like that. Um, yeah. And I can rem like, it's, I kind of think of like the, everything I know is related to everything else I know within a few degrees of separation. Which cannot possibly literally be true, but yeah. it is clearly how it feels in your brain. Mm -hmm. So it's an idiom. All of your things are connected together. Yeah. It's weird. Hmm. I also have like, um, like I've mentioned this before on the podcast for sure, but I've developed over time because I don't think this was always the case. But since I got like sick with neurological problems, I think that I've developed certain forms of synesthesia. And so there are things now that are like hard linked, like that shouldn't be connected to each other, but for whatever reason, invoking one automatically invokes the others now and they are inseparable in my mind <laughs> oh interesting yeah totally disconnected things um so meg before you joined the call ned and i were talking about um how uh creatures learn i was complaining mm -hmm. that I, I have spent all morning now with my dog barking at the neighbor's dog and me bringing him inside and attaching him to my coffee table so that he cannot go out and bark at the neighbor's dog anymore and I'd done it probably seven times in one morning. And every time I untethered him, he ran right back outside and started barking at the neighbor's dog, even though he does not like being tethered. And it seems perfectly clear that when I bring him back inside and tether him, he ought to make the connection between these two things. Right. Um, and Ned made a throwaway comment about um, how, how interesting it is that sometimes those connections get made instantly and sometimes they don't. Yeah, I threw it right <laughs> in the garbage. It's totally thrown away. Sorry. No. <laughs> I, that's, that's a good use of the idiom. I just was feeling very literal. Um, it's an excellent use of the idiom, isn't it? I didn't yeah. do that on purpose. Yeah. Um, so in behavioral psych, you'll talk about um, single trial learning. 
mm-hmm. which is um, or single trial um, association, and it's it's not all that common. It usually happens if something really really bad happens. Mm. Um, Yes. So in one of my psych textbooks in college, actually probably one of the ones that Lori James had me read, um, there was a story about um, an entomologist, a, an insect researcher who was in a car accident. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that was most clear to him in the accident was the exact species of dead insect that was on his windshield. Ah! while they were pulling him out of his car, which has nothing to do with the accident, right? That's just what his brain latched onto. <laughs> yeah. That's really weird. I mean, that's, it's, it's weird and also not weird. Like that's yeah. very. Right. The, and it's not. So much I kind of pivoted. It's a terrible example of um, single trial learning. Cause it's not like he learned anything there. Single trial learning is, you know, I walked onto the, carpeted floor and got a nasty shock and now I won't walk on the floor anymore, which is something that happens to puppies all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like running into a glass door. (laughs) That's a little harder to learn your lesson from though. It's not like you get better necessarily at noticing that it's glass. Well, no, they... No, if you've ever seen photos or videos of a dog, like they run into the glass door once and now they won't go through the door even if it's open. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes, sorry. Yes. Got it. Yep. Um, which incidentally don't ever use the, um, invisible fencing because your dog will bust out of it and then they won't come home. Right. Because it's, yeah. right. <laughs> um, yeah, something there hurt, hurt me. I'm running away from it forever. Yeah. Yep. Same problem. Um, yeah, it's, um, it is one of those things where like sometimes the connection gets made and sometimes it only takes one time for the connection to get made, get made. And then other times, my sulky dog is proof. Uh, the connection does not get made for one reason or another. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. He is uh, failing to make the connection over and over again and therefore is sulking about being stuck on tie down. I, um, I finally was smarter than my exceptional mouse. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. So I have, I have, I have apprehended and subsequently relocated. But didn't you say you relocated him to your garage? Yeah, they live in the garage now. It's a detached garage. And you actually think that Exceptional Mouse will stay in the garage? Well, the garage was the next best place outside of the house to put him because it was, it's still cold here. It's not cold enough to kill a mouse. And the reason that I let him stay in my house for so long was because it was like, hey, you were... You were intrepid and resilient enough to get into the house and survive the cat, the like great white death machine in the kitchen. And at the far shore, we don't uh, we don't admit to the presence or non-presence of wanted individuals and we don't extradite people and uh, or or or, like your logic. And so um, the mouse is a survivor, much like everyone else living in this space. And so we don't turn out survivors either. And so I was just like, well, buddy, you are on um, you're on spaceship far shore until the spring comes. And now it's warm enough here that it was reasonable to put the mice in the garage and they wouldn't die of exposure. Uh, It's warm enough that they can now make a little house. And so I put them out there with some donated materials that they could use for creating a little house. And I put them out with some of the dry cat food 
that I can no longer feed my cat because he's diabetic. So I gave them a buffet and <laughs> materials to get them through to whenever it's warm enough that they can move outside suitably. So they're free to do whatever they want at this point. Um, <laughs> Very kind of you. Yeah. Well, they, you know, if, <laughs> if you are a lost animal coming to the home of a bioethicist is probably a safe bet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they are fine. It, it, there were two mice. So I was wrong about there being one. Um, there were only two so far because we have we have apprehended both of them at the same time and we relocated both of them at the same time and we have seen absolutely no evidence of any kind of animals inside the house except humans and a cat since and that was like i want to say like four four or five days ago excellent yeah but it was kind of funny it ended up that we had to we figured out that they were living on the main floor with us. They were not living in the basement. They were on the main floor in the kitchen and we moved the stove away from the wall and that just rearranging some of the stuff in the kitchen forced their patterns of behavior to change to accommodate where the food source was and accommodate the bright lights and open spaces that were previously um, not bright and spaces were obscured. So it was, we made it much more inconvenient for them to move through the kitchen without the cat noticing. Hmm. And I drew them toward the back door. I moved the cat food to an open space and I, I kind of like got them to shift their behavior more towards the back of the house and less in the heart of the kitchen. And then once I managed to get them on that sort of path, it was easier to catch them. And then when I caught them, I put them outside nice yeah it was really they were they are so stinking cute i got them in a little cage because i wasn't sure if they'd want to like stay in the little habitat because why not right but they did not enjoy the habitat and so i was like okay well it's warm enough that we can just put the habitat outside and you can exit the habitat under your own accord which they did and they took all of the food with them so that's fine excellent well i hope that they stay gone we had yeah, a I <laughs> Me too. <laughs> we had a bit of an experiment in uh, my opinion of mice when we had a mouse problem when I lived in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I don't really mind the existence of mice. Right. But I mind the grossness of the evidence that there is a mouse in my house. Yeah. Yes. I That's share this. I share this. Yes. And I, in, it actually turns out that I mind that my, actually, he's too deaf and too confused at this point to have this problem. But um, my then young dog just went absolutely nuts at the fact that a mouse existed somewhere. And uh. he just spent every waking hour sniffing every single wall and barking at the top of his lungs and chasing mice in walls in homes. And it... I rapidly went from someone who had sympathy for a mouse who needed somewhere warm to be uh, in the winter to someone who just wanted the fucking mouse out of my fucking house before my dog went completely insane. Right. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> priorities. They're definitely like, how long have we been with the mouse? I think the mouse, the exceptional mouse and companion showed up in like October. So all of October, November, December, January, and most of February. So like almost five months we've lived with this mouse. And Damon was like, I, I, it was pushing. We were towing the line of like relationship harmony over this issue. And I was like, I'm not killing the fucking mouse. Like, so I have no problem capturing the mouse and relocating the mouse, but I'm not doing anything that's going to directly or indirectly kill the mouse. 
So you're saying that you and Damon were towing the line, but you were being a bleeding heart or, but you were being a bleeding heart and Damon felt like the mouse was not his cross to bear. How many more idioms can we throw at the situation? Uh, yeah, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could, tell, I could tell that he was like, as it became more and more difficult to like control the mice's behavior, um, <laughs> Like the thing, I think the only thing is like I took all of the responsibility for cleaning up after them. And Ned knows how obsessive I am about yeah. cleaning when there isn't a biohazard involved. Right. Like I'm obsessive about it when it's like just dust and dirt. So you can imagine the lengths that I went to to keep my kitchen sanitary while coexisting with a rodent. And it was quite extensive. So like making breakfast or making dinner wasn't just like, oh, make some food. It was like, hang on, let me sterilize the gas range really quick, which takes about a half hour. Yeah, that would get really old really fast. Right. And I, I'm not advocating for this kind of a lifestyle. It was, I felt like we were operating on a lowest common denominator here. Like, listen, the the only goal that we're really interested we have two goals keep our kitchen sanitary and don't kill the mouse and those things existed <laughs> in tension with each other considerably over five months and um i mean eventually we eventually we just live trapped them and it was the easiest thing to do but i had to like really get into my psychology and think about like how can i force you to do the thing that i want you to do here yeah um when we tried initially to get rid of the mice or to like what we tried to do was seal off the kitchen so that they would be forced to live in the basement. And at least then it would be, they would be away from the kitchen and all of the like places where we cook and make food and stuff. Um, and that just, we realized that didn't work because they weren't living in the basement to begin with. They weren't coming up through the basement. They were in the wall in the kitchen. And so then it was like, okay, well, in that case, we've got to like rearrange the physical environment to force them to take different pathways through it. And it, I don't, once I realized that, I felt really stupid for not realizing this five months ago. <laughs> I mean, to be fair. <laughs> problem within a week, you know, like, oh, there's the mice, no, put them outside. <laughs> to be fair, when most people have a mouse, they go by a mouse trap. They don't get deep into mouse psychology and try to figure out how to best their uh, their opponent. Right. Where was your cat in all of this? Or is he just too old to chase mice at no, this point? No, my cat's not too old. My cat is 18, so he is old, but he is in extremely good condition for an 18-year-old cat. He is still a, a totally primally activated murder machine. <laughs> um, the thing with my cat is that he is albino, and so he's real easy to see coming. He's not stealthy in the shadows. Um, and he's also genetically deaf. And so he doesn't, he has never heard anything much less himself. And he doesn't understand how to be stealthy. Got because it. This, the auditory element, the, the audible element of being a cat is unknown to him, but is very obvious to the rest of us. And he doesn't retract his claws when he walks. So they click. <laughs> so you hear, it's almost like the Jaws soundtrack. Awesome. Yeah. Of the, it's like click, clack. Yeah. Click, click, clack, click, clack, click, click, click. And so he sneaks up on me all of the time um, because sometimes I don't hear him coming until I hear his clicking. And then he walks up right behind me and slashes me with his claws to get my attention, How which it fun. does. And I haven't been able to break him of that habit. Um, but anyway, this is a long, long road to telling you that the mouse could definitely hear him coming. Yeah. 
So if you hear the cat clicking around, you just run out of the way. Now, the cat was successful in decimating this mouse family. Like he captured and ate or just destroyed and we put outside five or six mice in the fall. Yeah. Um, so I know that he's effective. It's just that he caught all of the low-hanging mouse fruit. There's another <laughs> issue. Nice. All the low-hanging fruit. And only the ones that were smart enough to outwit my cat were the ones left behind. And for this, I had respect for them as well. So this is why you had two exceptional mice and some yeah. non-exceptional mice who had... Uh, Lots of non-exceptional lost mice. Their, lost their lunch, lost their lives yes. um, earlier. And- like I keep the kitchen really clean, so there's not like food scraps left around. Um, Became anywhere dead as mice- a doornail. <laughs> Sorry, dead as a doornail. Yeah. The, so the mice were existing off of my cat's food. They would come out and they would sneak cat's food out of the cat bowl and run away. And so I'm sure that he caught mice either adjacent to or in the act of stealing his food. Would and you say he caught them in the lion's den? He caught them in the lion's den, red-handed, and. Mm-hmm. It really got your goat. It did get my goat. I, I, It was so sweet and so sad. One day I walked into the kitchen and I was like, what's that on the floor? It was just a mouse head. Just the oh. head. <laughs> just sitting there like it was asleep. Like, mm, I'm a mouse with a little mouse face. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I got another one. Have so, I, yeah. If I told you two about my father's impromptu cat cognition experiment? No. No. So my father moved to the country with two city cats who were indoor outdoor cats, which like, yes, you can yell about outdoor cats. Um, No, my current cats are not outdoor cats. Um, So he moved to the country and we were super worried that these cats just weren't going to survive. And they promptly started leaving him uh, not just rat heads, but rattlesnake rattles around the house. They were quite good at surviving in the country, it turned out. Yeah. Um, Whoa. So my dad, who is A, frugal, and B, was watching the uh, cats just get fatter and fatter, decided that it was a waste of his money to buy cat food. (laughs) Um, And the cats, (laughs) who were, I don't know, eight, something like that. They were young-ish, but, you know, plenty old enough to have established habits, um, were not happy with not being fed anymore. Uh Excuse me. So instead of spending all of their uh, waking hours outside hunting like effective little predators, um, they started to spend every waking hour following my father around and just screaming at him because he wasn't feeding them anymore. <laughs> so this he is, decided. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to say this Go isn't aligned with my perception and experience with cats. Like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. Excuse me. You forgot us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he bought another box of cat food or bag of cat food, and he decided that um, he was going to feed them as little as possible. And so he started what was for him just a matter of survival and what was for me as a um, training as a dog trainer and going to school with an interest in behavioral psychology was this like amazing cognition experiment. Yes. So that, the first morning he woke up and he put one piece of kibble in each cat's bowl and that was breakfast and they followed him around and they screamed at him all day. So the next meal he put down two and the next meal he put down three and the answer is seven. Seven. Ah, for both of them. They both agreed that the answer is seven. Yes. Oh my God. Which actually matches up pretty well with most of the animal cognition studies that look at how high animals can count. Yeah. Um, which, and by the way, a lot. 
Uh, yeah, it it is. Um, I want to say that it's four plus or minus three, or maybe it's three plus or minus four, but it, it's usually right around seven that that we start having trouble keeping track, and it just turns into a lot or enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, if you can find video of this, and I will try because it's really fun. Um, we study this stuff formally in. Um, Animals the same way that we study it in babies, which is to say that you show them a situation that does not visually make sense. Uh-huh. And no you then you then time how long they stare at it. Because if they understand that it doesn't make sense, they stare at it. Oh. And if they don't understand that it doesn't make sense, then they don't spend any time trying to figure it out. It's just so, irrelevant. Yeah. So you take a, uh, the, you know, the classic example is you take the yellow lab who just wants to chase the ball all day long. And you take a clear cylinder and you throw three tennis balls into the clear cylinder and then you put a piece of plywood in front of the clear cylinder. Mm -hmm. And you put two more balls into the clear cylinder with the dog watching. Yep. And then where the dog can't see, you open the trap door and you pull out one. Okay. And then you pull the plywood away. And the dog saw three go in and then he saw two more go in, but he did not see the one go out. And you end up with this really adorable, super classic, awesome from a scientific standpoint, you know, 10 seconds where your ball-obsessed black lab just sits there tilting his head in different directions, <laughs> trying to figure out why there aren't the expected number of balls in the clear cylinder. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And first of all, it's brilliant science, right? It's right. really, really clever. Um, but second of all, it results in really funny videos about really confused dogs. <laughs> oh, that's for dogs. If you want the non-scientific version, there's a whole series of magicians playing tricks on dogs with dog treats. Oh, yeah. Those are pretty good, too. <laughs> yeah. The dog responses range from like, that was pretty cool. You know, just like a nice, relaxed tail wag of like, uh-huh. I understand that something weird just happened to like a couple of dogs who look at the magician like he's the devil and just like run away and refuse to have anything to do with him ever again because the thing he did does not make sense and they don't get it um (laughs) but yeah it it is it is really fun science um and it's often replicatable science like if you're curious about this and you have an animal find something that they care about and play this trick on them and see what they do um but it also results in really cute head tilty confused pet videos this is um kind of related to that concept of object permanence yes Um, yeah absolutely i learned something that really like changed the way i think about my own um my own self because i was diagnosed with adhd and um there's some evidence that people with adhd never develop object permanence Mm. um and so you can imagine like we have these brains that are very flexible. And so when the more I thought about it, I'm like, that's very in line with how I experience the world. Like I have ways of, of having object permanence, right? Like understanding logically that in my bedroom is still the bed and the pillows yeah. and my, you know, my laundry is put away on the shelves or whatever, you know, that that shirt is there. But um, when I see how other people behave, I'm like, oh, you have you have the like biological object permanence, not the like inferred constructed version that I have. Mm -hmm. Because when I leave a room, that room doesn't exist in my mind. Like I can't. And so it's why like one of the problems with ADHD, right, is it's like very easy to be distracted because you, you know, you go in another room and you forget why you came in there or whatever. And, and that happens to everybody to some extent. But for me, or especially with people, it's, it's full time and it's kind of intense. It's like, it's why 
like parts of my life can just be on fire and completely like burning to the ground and I go up like I go into my house and I completely forget about that or I go for a drive and now I have huh. no idea like I logically I can think about it and I can recall sure. it from memory but it's not the same as being front of mind the way it might be for someone else who has that sense of object permanence that's more of a like a biological connection or a more strongly like neurotypical I don't know you know these are all just yeah. words, but I think you guys understand what I'm saying. Um, yeah, I think it, I get what you're saying. It has really like changed the way. Um, it was really weird too because taking the ADHD meds really activates that part of my brain that allows me to access object permanence, and it's amazing how different I can different. function. Like yeah. when I'm on when I'm on like a stimulant med, um, I my day is entirely different. I if I leave something on the like I don't leave shit out. I don't. I don't like make a mess because I'm like, oh, I still remember that I left that thing out. Let me put it away and do this other thing where mm -hmm. as soon as that's gone, it's just like if I'm having a high symptom day where I'm not like really trying to focus on my life, like all the shit comes out of my closet. Like there's like the next day I wake up and I'm like, who is this asshole I live with who just like pulled everything out and left it strewn about? So I had this happen to me and I am not diagnosed with ADHD. And if anything, I would say my object permanence is a little too good. I will like try yeah. to switch topics and still be stuck on something else. Um, but I had a really funny moment um, at Burning Man one year where I just had too many projects going on, right? Like there was a bunch of stuff going on and I had like a sewing project and a thing for the department that I was volunteering with and a thing for my husband who needed something. And also I was making a snack for my campmates. And I found myself at the back of my RV and I literally followed a chain of half finished projects <laughs> all the way back to the front of my RV, right? So I had come into my RV to make a snack and I had started making a snack. And then I'd remembered that I needed to change the batteries in my headlamp. So I left the snack halfway finished on the counter and I went back to the table to pull out the batteries. And then I left the batteries and the headlamp on the table because while I was changing the batteries in my headlamp, I realized that I needed to change my socks. So my socks are, you know, on the chair next to the table. <laughs> I had made it all the way to the back of the RV with like 12 halfway finished projects. And I'm like There's meticulously evidence. following the chain of evidence back and like trying to finish each one. And I finally, like an hour later, walk out of my RV with a snack from my campmates. <laughs> most of whom have long since wandered off because who the fuck takes an hour to put together a bowl of snacks? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. But for me, that's really atypical, right? Like I don't hit that point until I'm totally scattered and, and fairly stressed out. My ordinary habit is to finish one thing before I move on to the next. So it, <laughs> it, it was really, it was actually really hilarious to me <laughs> to find myself in that situation that particular time. I think if it were my norm, it wouldn't have struck it. Like it wouldn't have stood out as being quite right. so funny. <laughs> right. That's great. I, I find that um, I can induce states that make me feel very similar to what Ned describes as ha having ADHD symptoms. Yeah. And um, I can induce the opposite where I hyper-focus. And the reality of how I am by default is somewhere in between. I definitely don't mostly have trouble remembering or keeping track of things or dates or stuff I got to do or things I started and set down somewhere. I tend to have num a number of plates spinning at any given time. 
Um, yeah, that's, I would say my standard as well. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think, um, most people can get to an approximation of ADHD, which is why I think it's such a difficult, um, mental health disorder or, you know, whatever word you want to use. Some people call it all kinds Mm -hmm. of things, but why it's, why it's so difficult for understanding because everyone like you can imagine like ADHD is basically that state you're in when you're really sleep deprived and you don't have a lot of like prefrontal, like you don't have a lot of executive function available and you're, you're at that, your wits end of like being able to make decisions. And, and so ADHD means a lot of like, um, struggle to make decisions, struggle to, um, have like, like we just mentioned, like object permanence, um, working memory works a little bit differently because your short-term memory isn't as good. Like long-term memory is fine. I think, um, it's typically like the short-term memory transition is more difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like having like a lot of, a lot of people have sort of filters in the way I, the way I describe it is basically my mind is just screaming all the time that it's hungry, hungry for stimulation, which means Mm -hmm. food, TV, media, um, like all kinds of stuff is, is just, and sometimes that's a louder voice than others, but typically it's pretty loud. And I forget until I take the medication, how loud it actually is because taking the medication, it's like, holy shit, I don't have to live with this like angry roommate in my head, just yelling at me all the time. Um, it yeah. sounds more comfortable to not have an angry roommate. It's, I it is. Hate, yeah. I hate to bring up an interesting topic right when we ought to be wrapping, wrapping up this up, episode, yeah. but a thing, that, <laughs> a thing that would be interesting to discuss at a later date, um, the thing that you just described, Ned, is the reason for the diagnostic criteria mm-hmm. being this situation impacts your ability to have a fulfilled and kind of typical life. Right. Because in almost every situation where we describe a problem, that problem happens to someone sometimes, right? It doesn't matter how focused I am. Occasionally I end up at the back of my RV with 20 projects scattered in front of me. Right. Right. Yeah. The component of the human experience. Yeah. 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 Um, So trying to figure out when it's the logical consequence of a series of stressors or overstimulation or sleep deprivation and when it is a sign that you could use medication to handle a problem um, is this like super super tricky, super interesting thing that I think would be fun to discuss with the two of you at some yeah, point. I'm, yeah, I'm down. We should add not that now. to the list. But yes, <laughs> right. um, I'm, I'm definitely down for it. If we're What's gonna, a good idiom? The sand is flowing through our hourglass. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. The sands of time are calling. Um, let's let's wrap up. So uh, anyway. Do we have a color of the day? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just I just got a message oh, from our wow. research team. So we have color of the day. Oh, um, good yeah. So uh, since this is a design podcast, and if you can't make the connection between understanding idiom and um, psychology and all of the other stuff we discussed and design, then listen more because we'll get more into it. But um, right. for now, this episode, we're going to wrap it up with color of the day. So the color of the day is um, is called Zest. And I'm going to pop Ooh. it in the chat for both of you so you can have a look at it. And then I'm going to tell everybody the um, so the the color values, the RGB color values for this are two two nine one three two two seven. This is kind of an orange color, and uh, Ooh. yeah. So this is the color of the day. Um, if you're working in it on any projects and uh, 
you should probably be incorporating this color today. It won't be good tomorrow, so use it today um, and mm-hmm. then be done mm-hmm. with it. It's kind of how the color of the day works. Um, Hilariously, when you were um, preparing to describe and and show us the color of the day, yeah, I highlighted color of the day in orange highlighter in our Word document. And oh, nice. Turned up orange, so yeah. That was like, Oh, perfect. And see, you said zest and I thought lemon and then Uh you gave me orange. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, this is like straight up Florida fuzzy navel oranges, like the color of the orange that's printed on the orange juice box. Yes. When I when I got the um, the the message from the research team, I was like, oh, zest. okay, lemony. I'm I'm ready for this. And I had the same experience. Like I clicked on it. I'm like, that's not yellow. Um, Right. Yeah, it's pretty great. Well, uh, it's also yeah. not really the color of orange zest, though it is the color of the very outside of the orange peel. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, it's um, it's kind of a muted orange, like it's more red than yellow, I guess, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. maybe a little darker than it is lighter. Like if you're yeah, right at a mid tone, it's a little bit below mid tone. It's my, not neon-y mind. or anything. No, it's pretty. No, yeah. It's um, almost a slightly like brownish orange. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a very natural color of orange. It is, it is not yeah. it's not a color of orange that you achieve with like a computer. It's a color of orange that you achieve in nature. Right. Yes. Like, yeah, it's definitely um a color that you could experience in the world and not only something that comes with graphic design or something like that. Right. Yeah. I hear a cat in the background. I know he's he's upset. He came up here to get me and he, he scratched at me and I heard him coming and then he got me and then I was sitting here with him for a minute and now he's downstairs and he's yelling at me because I didn't go down with him. Fantastic. (laughs) You You saw me, I left and you didn't come with and now (laughs) I wait long enough. He'll come back up and he'll show up underneath my desk Uh and he'll scratch me because I'm not moving fast enough. Well, the good news for you is we've done the color of the day and you can go yeah. get him before he scratches you. Right. But also you do kind of live in hostage to your cat, don't you? I do. I am hostage to my cat. Um, yes. I am his medical caregiver and his food provider and his companion. I think he's gotten really used to having us around. Um, yeah. Anyway, Damon works in his office, which is a few blocks away during the daytime. But um, now if I'm, he will wake up from a nap and be like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm right here. It's fine. You can see me now because he can't hear me. So I have to like visibly appear in his field Uh of view or he doesn't know where I am. And he comes looking for me and he screams at the top of his lungs the whole time because he can't hear anything. So he doesn't know how loud he is. Oh dear. Well, um, let's, uh, let's just say, so uh, if you're listening to this and you made it all the way to the end, we'd love to hear from you. And you can email Dana, who is now rapidly becoming a co-host, um, but may also continue to act as the uh, executive assistant. So her email is Dana, D-A-N-A, at fcbm.io. Um, I will be happy to receive your emails. Yeah. So let us know what you think about the episode or if you have any complaints or whatever, and we'll we'll take care of you. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Okay, bye. Thank you.